0: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. By now, you are well aware of this story of Terry Lynn McClintock. She is the woman who was involved in the murder and sexual assault and abduction. It's a horrible, horrible story of Tori Stafford. She's been in the news because she was moved out of her prison into an Aboriginal healing lodge... To serve her time, didn't spend a lot of time in prison and now is in some place where she's got a dinette, no walls and sounds like a kind of a cottage more than a prison. And the the crime that she committed was just incredibly terrible. And this has now gone to the House of Commons and there's been an argument between Paul. It's somehow become a political thing rather than a justice thing. Well, I was reading a piece in the National Post yesterday. And it's a troubling piece and it's a great piece by a great writer. Uh, His name is Tristan Hopper. He is a National Post reporter. It's pointing out just how often this kind of thing happens. Uh, Tristan joins us now. Tristan, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm reading your piece, and this happens a lot. Yeah, I think there was,
1: uh, I mean, there was voices. uh, With the start of There was there was people saying, well, this is just, uh, there's got to be a clerical error. I mean, this doesn't happen all the time. I mean, you can trust our our system of, uh, you know, justice system uh, to deal with with brutal murderers. Don't worry about it. But uh, I don't know. This is sort of a file I look at, and this is something that is kind of expected. Uh, I mean, if someone commits first-degree murder, I mean, according to uh, Correction Service of Canada, their own stat says uh, you will be out of jail in, on average, 22.4 years. So, you know, hardly a life sentence. And uh, there's multiple examples, as I detail in the piece, of people who have committed heinous murders. And I, I particularly focused on heinous murders. I mean, this isn't just a, uh, you know, uh, someone took a swing at a body and he, he fell wrong, and then that's a secondary murder or manslaughter charges. I mean, these are horrific uh, incidents of murder, and I found everything. It runs the gauntlet from child killers to serial killers to mass shooters to terrorists. Anything you can think of. Canada has set them free after like ten or fifteen years in
0: jail. You left out the the you left out the cannibals, which <laughs> I mean, I laugh, but it's just it's incredible. I'm not laughing, ha ha. It's like out of disbelief that first of all, a first degree murder conviction, as I understand it, Tristan. When they say you're sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for twenty five years, I think most people's understanding of a sentence that is, uh, and when I say sentence, I mean like a grammatical sentence that is that straightforward is. You will be in prison for 25 years, period. Then we can start talking about whether you get out. That doesn't seem to be the case. No, and and I mean, it's called a life sentence, and I
1: hate when it's called the life sentence in the media, because they say, don't worry, you've gotten a life sentence. And I think a lot of people read that, and they think we're like the United States, um, where they actually can give you a life sentence without parole. I mean, if you're a brutal killer, they can just say, okay, you're in jail. Like, that's the last you'll be hearing of him uh, until he dies of cancer and 60 years in the joint. Uh, but the life sentence, that only refers to the fact that if you commit first-degree murder, your your parole never ends. You can get full parole, but you can still be rearrested if you break the conditions of that parole. That's all it refers to. It doesn't mean you're going to spend life in prison, or that's even the expectation, or that's even what happens. It's very, very, very rare uh, that you die in jail. I mean, Paul Bernardo and Clifford Olson are probably going to die in jail. That's about it.
0: Well, and only because, Tristan, we know that if those two, because of the notoriety with them, if they were ever let out, the entire correction system would have people marching on it. Otherwise, you know, I mean, not everyone in Canada knows every mass murderer, serial killer, sex offender, whatever else. There are only a few that really are that notorious.
1: Yeah, and that's sort of the the classist angle to this. So if you look at my list, uh, I mean, there's sort of a missing, murdered, indigenous women side to this where... Uh, I mean, we've let out serial killers, uh, people who have shown, uh, I, I forget the circumstance, was I think uh, he was 19 years old and then picks up a random woman in a bar and then just brutally murders her and then bites her corpse. And then he was out of jail a few years later on a manslaughter charge. And, you know, the, the supposition is that he got such a light charge because his victim was an indigenous. Uh, he gets that after eight years and continues doing it. Uh, So that's a case where the person he murdered didn't really have a family, didn't have a close social network, so they weren't there to appear and deliver their victim's impact statements and stop him from being released. So that's a case. And then all the other cases where the victim's families were close, uh, yeah, every single name I include there, um, these people have been freed or given parole or whatever uh, against the very strong opposition of the family. So, I mean, it's pretty common in Canada if you lose a loved one to a murderer, You've got to deal with that, and you've also got to deal with the fact that roughly every 10, 15 years, you're going to have to relive all the trauma of that in front of a parole board, begging them not to let him out.
0: And when you say, and we only have a minute or two left here, but when you mention that this is against the wishes of the family, I guess that you and I could probably understand... That's the baby. Sorry. That's okay. I I figured you and I could probably understand if a victim's family was for some reason supportive of the rehabilitation side or whatever, and said, you know what, we really would like this person to be out. I guess maybe we could understand, but that's never the case here. It's always against their wishes. Uh, yeah, I mean, a case I looked into in depth. It's it,
1: it's in the piece. It's uh, Don Edwards. He was a goalie goalie for the Buffalo Sabres from Hamilton. Uh, uh, yeah, and uh, and it, it was a it was a case where. Um, he, he, both his parents were murdered by, you know, a, a supposed jilted uh, ex-lover of his sister, and then he's let out on day parole, and then, you know, he tells the parole board, I found Jesus, I feel sorry, but, you know, for Don Edwards, who was, you know, had his life ruined by this murderer, uh, he doesn't believe him. I mean, it's he's a deceptive person. The kind of person who murders someone's parents, you know, to get back at an ex-girlfriend is inherently a deceptive person. Uh, so he doesn't even live in Canada anymore. He says he's lost faith in having safety for his family, so he now lives in the United States, and uh, I, I can't fault him for that.
0: Tristan Hopper of the National Post. It's a wonderful, wonderful piece, and when I say wonderful, again, it'll make your blood curdle and boil, but nonetheless, go online and read it. Here is just a partial list of the brutal murderers that Canada has set free. I uh, appreciate the time today, Tristan. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a tragic case that wrapped up in Hamilton this week. The sentencing was yesterday. You may have heard about it. You may have read about it. You certainly heard about it. If you were listening to CHML yesterday, a man was walking along a Hamilton street, got into some sort of confrontation and was stabbed in the heart and died right there on the street. What made this death, which was senseless, even more infuriating for some was the punishment. Because the killer was 16 at the time and a youthful offender under the law, even though the killing was pretty much completely unprovoked and completely without mercy, the guy just stabbed him in the heart and then took off and didn't call for help. This person received, got a sentence of just three years in custody and four years of supervision, three years in jail for stabbing someone in the heart and killing them. Now, to the surprise of no one, I'm sure the victim's family was outraged. They had a lot of things to say in court and outside of court. They called the system ridiculous. Uh, And in this particular case, I got to tell you, it's hard to argue with some of the things or a lot of the things they said. Three years seems very, very insignificant for taking a life. And this all reverts back, though, to the idea that youths should be treated differently than adults. Question is how differently? Dr. Jean Clinton is an associate clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. Uh, she is an expert on the developing brain. She joins us now. Dr. Clinton, thanks for doing this today.
2: Uh, thanks for the invite.
0: Now, I, I understand, and I think most people would understand, that we would not want to have a criminal justice system that would ruin some young person's life for doing something that may be criminal But would largely be seen as something stupid and, you know, if you throw a brick through a window as a kid, or if you steal something from a corner store, we don't want to ruin your life completely for something that you've done when you were young and stupid. I mean, we always hear the phrase young and stupid, but when you're 16, should you not be competent or at the certain age where you would be able to distinguish that killing someone is wrong?
2: Right, so it's a, it's a complicated uh, situation, Scott, and first my, my sympathies go out to the, the absolute tragedy of this, uh, of this situation. I think what we're dealing with in, um, uh, when neuroscience and the law meet up is a very, uh, so that's the study of the brain, um, is a very, it's an area that is just, uh, just unfolding. It's a new area of research um, in the past uh, 10, 15 years. And uh, it's absolutely true that there's a period of time um, uh, between childhood and taking on adult roles where kids do things that are pretty difficult to understand as an adult. Yes, parents all know this parents, we know this, and Aristotle and Socrates knew about this as well. It's been this way for a very long time. But what we know in the past decade or so is that it's not just hormones uh, that are causing these changes, which is what everybody thought, but it's actually that the brain is under construction during this period of time. So, whereas everybody thought, well, you know, the brain gets to its adult size and you know quite early, it doesn't change all that much. Um, uh, what this a uh, study that followed the same kids over a year, over year, over year, saw that there was massive changes happening in the brain, but not all at the same time, and that the emotional brain was developing ahead of the stop, plan think about it, brain. So some people describe it as a fantastic, fast-moving vehicle, but without the brakes.
0: So, so the wh-
2: brain is under construction, and that's what this law is based on.
0: So when, though, generally, and, and again, we're talking about a typical person. We know there's always exceptions to the rule, for yes. sure. Mm-hmm. But in a typical young person, When do we begin to have a concept of right and wrong, of knowing that the thing you're doing is either something that's okay or something is clearly not okay?
2: Sure, that that starts to develop very, very early, four, five, six years of age. So it's not a question of knowing what's right or wrong. It's what areas of the development and the brain take over at that particular moment. So particularly when there are peers or the, uh, or, the, uh, or the believing that peers are observing or involved um, uh, have kids do more risk-seeking mm. behaviors. Just the presence of the thought that peers are around. We now know alters. The brains, so what we know what, how the law is approaching this as I understand it is was there a crime committed and that's yes, absolutely the next part of it is well what's the sentencing that is due to this uh, uh, to this uh, act that's occurred and the the law has changed significantly with um, uh, with an understanding that the adolescent brain is not a mini adult brain but that, in fact, there are huge changes that occur uh, in the brain. And this was occurring at the same time as our legal system was saying, we're no, we're, we know that locking kids up isn't being effective. Is there a way that we can think of changing their life trajectory rather than s- stamping the seal and saying, this is it, you're, you're done for?
0: Is the, is the concept, though, of right and wrong, of knowing right and wrong, the same concept as understanding cause and effect. If I know that killing someone might be wrong, yes. but I do, I also understand that if I stab somebody, they are going to die. And I mean, are are yes. the two things? Yes. Do they go hand in hand?
2: Yeah, this isn't about this isn't about uh, right or wrong. I'm quite I'm quite sure that um, uh, that that young person who was involved there um, knew that what he was doing was wrong. It wasn't a question of do I know what's right or wrong. It's more a question of in the moment at the time that it was occurring, what was, was he able to access the ability to inhibit and that's where the immaturity comes Interesting. in. Interesting.
0: We're chatting with Dr. Jean Clinton, who is an expert on the developing brain. She is a uh, cl- associate clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at McMaster. And just before the break, we were talking about how younger people, the inhibitions may be there. Right and wrong is there. The inhibitions, the ability to control those are not as strong. This, though, raises all kinds of other things then. And I, we're talking about, I understand two different things here when I talk about a criminal act or some other thing. But if, if young people uh, can't control those inhibitions as well, because their brain is still developing, should we be having discipline of student suspensions or expulsions or whatever at schools? Because we could say, well, they just, it's not their fault. They're not able to control those inhibitions and not do those stupid things that are getting them in trouble.
2: So I think I, I think it's a great question, and uh, uh, we could we could take it to the other end. If uh, if we know that with the adolescent brain under construction, that things like suspensions and expulsions aren't effective, should we not be thinking about what do we do in our school systems to be making sure that kids are learning impulse inhibition and these other and these other strategies? And I think that's that's more the direction that we need to see things going in education. but I think I think coming back to the the key concept uh, from the um, uh, from the material that I've read is this concept of the um, uh, youth justice being about uh, where there is the possibility of rehabilitation and changing the trajectory of that young person um, compared to the punitive, Thou shalt not. We're going to show you. This is how. Uh, this is the. This is the heavy arm of the law. There has been a, a, a significant shift in um, uh, in in the uh, in the literature as well as in practice, based on the fact that these are brains under construction that are changing, and that the life course may be in fact very significantly different. Which is hard, very hard, as a parent who has just lost. Uh, you know, or, or a family who's just lost someone to think that here's this kid getting an opportunity that has the, the other has been deprived exactly. of. Exactly. And could rehabilitation,
0: could rehabilitation not be done over a longer time? See, I'm looking at this and I think, you know, I think most people would say, I get it that they're a youthful offender. It's not going to be the same. But three years in confinement for killing someone just seems so short, as opposed to even if they said, okay, you're going to be getting rehabilitation, but it's going to be 10 years. Would that harm that child so significantly that they would not be in 10 years able to get out of prison and be better?
2: I think it all depends very much on what is it that the prison system is offering the um uh the, the young person. And again, you know, you might there there will be those who hear offering. What do you mean offering? They need to be locked up so that they learn their lesson. But I think what we know from the science in criminology is that they do not the 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 programs, what's available to help young people uh recognize the impact of their actions is far more important than a punitive approach. So things like restorative practices uh, that have become very, uh, very well known from our indigenous um, mm. um, uh, people, um, where where kids, uh, uh, young people are facing those who they have offended, and are a- able to see the pain in the face of the other and finally understand this has an impact. So those kinds of the programming that uh, that helps kids uh, develop better impulse control. Um, All of those things that are rehabilitative rather than uh, punitive are the things that, um, sure, let's have them in longer if they have those abilities to support the young people and get them uh, them back into a functional society.
0: The one other thing, uh, there's probably more than one other thing, for Mm -hmm. sure there is. We could talk about this for 12 or 15 days, let alone hours, but uh, and I'm sure there are conferences about this very thing, but One other thing that I think makes a lot of people a little crazy about this is that we have decided as a society that 16 is sufficiently old and mature enough to get behind the wheel of a car and drive a 4,000 pound bullet around. And we trust that a 16 year old is competent mentally to say, I know I can't drink and drive. I know I can't speed, or at least supposedly, I know I'm not permitted just to run somebody down. So if we're saying you're old enough, for that activity, why are you not old enough then to know not to stab someone and get an adult sentence?
2: Yes, no, it's a a, a puzzling um, putting together of, of different facts, that's for sure. I think, first of all, the adolescent brain uh, is under construction, absolutely. But the ability to develop skills and to learn is absolutely magnificent during this period of time. so the 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 young driver becomes a more skilled driver um, um, uh, very quickly. So the brain is capable of changing what the brain is busy doing. Is what is actually literally sculpting those brain cells to uh, uh to do it, so we can train young drivers to be competent drivers and in fact we know that um uh, in, in many many different um epidemiology things conduct disorder is going down many many things are actually lowering in our in our society with the, with some of the changes that we've seen, but we will have these aberrations.
0: Doctor, I only have 10 seconds left, but we have picked 18 kind of as an, I don't know if it's an arbitrary number, but from your experience, what is the age that we really are at a point where we've sort of crossed that threshold and we are now competent to be seen as adults? Is 18 the perfect age or, and I say I only have 10 seconds, but is that the right age?
2: I think it has to be older, actually, and it may need to be older, even older in men than it is in males than it is in females. I think it, uh, I think the science is pointing towards closer to 25 in men. Wow. Yeah. Uh,
0: Dr. Yeah. Jean Clinton, it is fascinating. You can find her work online. Uh, really appreciate you taking some time to talk about this today. Really interesting.
2: Okay, thank you. Thank you for talking about it.
0: It's, uh, it is, it'll drive you nuts, though. When you see someone get three years for killing someone, it is hard to wrap your brain around that. But is 25 years now what we should be, where we should be for adulthood? Maybe. I don't know. But I heard three years and boy, I I was boiling when I heard three years. A lot of other people I'm sure were too. I know the family was. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Over the years in the NFL, in football in general, celebrations have been a thing. Right? We know that you know touchdown celebrations and, and sack celebrations and whatever else. Guys have celebrated. It's part of the game. Leagues have tried over the years to rein it in a little bit because sometimes they've led to hard feelings. So the NFL has taken it to the absolute nth degree where you're not allowed to pretty much do anything or else you're going to get a taunting penalty. The CFL this year, and I kind of like this, as long as you can do it in good fun... Do whatever you want, make it a show as long as it's not rubbing the face of the other team in it, where you're going to start a fight or do something like that. Knock yourself out, be creative, have some fun. Not everyone agrees. That's fine. But the CFL lightened the rules and said, yeah, yeah, go, you know, we don't worry about the touchdown celebrations. Just don't do it as taunting. All right. However. We do know that over the years, I'm going to bring Will in. Will's on the other side of the glass today. We do know over the years there have been cases where guys have gone over the line. So a number of years ago, Terrell Owens, he was playing for San Francisco at the time, scores a touchdown, runs, he's playing against Dallas in Dallas, runs to midfield onto the Dallas Cowboys star, onto their logo, which is kind of a sacred thing for the players, and spikes the ball on the star, which is just... It's almost the equivalent of sticking your finger in the eyeball of everyone in Texas. Mm -hmm. That starts a fight. Of course, that's that's not going to go well. Randy Moss one time pretended to moon the crowd. Didn't really (laughs) drop his pants, just mimed as if he was mooning the crowd after scoring a touchdown. There's other ones. Well, now we get New York Jets running back Isaiah Kroll. So he is playing against Cleveland a couple weeks ago. It was the game that Cleveland won, ended their like two-year losing streak big game but he used to play for the Cleveland Browns so he's he's fired up for this game Isaiah Kroll who now plays for the Jets he's fired up for this game and he scores a touchdown against his old teammates doesn't yet know they're going to lose the game so he's he's still into this his touchdown celebration was to take the football and pretend to use it as a piece of toilet paper and to wipe his bottom with it oh yeah it was it was to say it was in questionable slash poor taste is sort of without saying. He bent over, took the football, pretended it was a piece of toilet paper, did a wipey-wipey, and then threw it into the crowd. <laughs> so <laughs> he he later said, well, I wasn't really trying to make a statement. Yeah, right, you weren't. You were making a statement. It was in Cleveland. You were sticking it to the fans of your old team. Anyway, the NFL says, uh-uh-uh-uh. Find him for over $13,000 for his misbehavior. Appropriately so. You don't want that kind of stuff. His coach ripped into him after the game, called it inexcusable, said it'll never happen again. You know, if your coach says that, basically what it means is he's pulled you aside and said, do it again and you're gone. You don't get paid. So it's not going to happen again in all likelihood. His mom (laughs) told ESPN, that she was shocked and embarrassed by it. That he's such a mild-mannered, nice guy who never reacts. I was, I was shocked. I had all these people over at the house to watch the game, and I was so embarrassed by the fact that he used the toilet paper or used the football as a piece of toilet paper. So everybody is ticked off at Isaiah Kroll for using the football as a piece of toilet paper, and well, almost everybody.
1: Almost everybody. Almost
0: everybody. Who was happy with this? Well. You would, not, you know, they always say that crime doesn't pay. Oh, it does. Uh-oh. Isaiah Kroll, shortly after this, signed an endorsement deal. With Charmin? With Dude Wipes. <laughs> it is a man's wet wipe company that you carry around and never leave home without these, so you always have a clean posterior after you've done your business. He has turned a fining offense into something that's making him money now. in the nfl they say crime crime absolutely pays and i will bet you i would bet money i know this is true there's no way it's not true he is making more money with this endorsement than he had to pay in his fine guarantee you he's making more than thirteen thousand dollars for this endorsement plus all the dude wipes that he could possibly use in his lifetime. I have no idea how many that would be.
1: Are they are they going to be branded with like pictures of him on the wipes now?
0: Well, he's got this Instagram post where it's in his bathroom and you no. would, you would actually think that he may have a small problem because there are literally 1 2 3 4 5 <laughs> 6 7 8 9 10 11 12 13 14 15 17 packs of dude wipes in the picture. This guy's got gastro problems. You need 17 packs of wet wipes to clean up after yourself. But nonetheless, and he's smiling like you can't believe, like he's the happiest guy on the planet because he's got the cleanest butt in Cleveland or New York, (laughs) wherever he is now. But nonetheless, you say that crime doesn't pay? Crime pays. This guy has now got an endorsement deal because of what got him in trouble. This is a soul-crushing story. So if you're ever needing... A cleansing of the Heine area, and you don't want to support bad behavior in the NFL or other sports. Don't buy dude wipes. Go and get what was the kind you said?
1: I, oh, I just thought it was going to be regular toilet paper. Well, whatever. Yeah,
0: something. Get something else. Not dude wipes because dude wipes is now supporting bad behavior or something along those lines. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in our good friend Rick Zampern, who just made it home in time to have dinner and come right back onto the radio. Sir, thanks for doing this tonight. No problem. On the menu tonight, egos and sausage. It's one of those nights where it's you just grab whatever's there. No Pop-Tarts to go with it?
3: Not tonight. Ah. Uh, I'm going to save that for uh, another emergency.
0: Eggos and Pop-Tarts m- is the dinner of champions.
3: <laughs> That's what I hear.
0: Yeah, it's uh, especially if your championship involves carbs, that would be a uh, that would be a championship meal for sure.. Yeah. So you are the guy in this city that I look to for knowledge and explanations and insight in the world of football. You are the host of the fifth quarter. You are the guy. So maybe you can try and explain something to me that I am completely baffled by right now. And that is a report that Randy Ambrosie, who is the commissioner of the Canadian Football League, is down in Mexico City right now talking with the folks from a Mexican football league about something. And they're kind of, they're calling it the CFL 2.0. And it's seeming like, I don't know if they're talking expansion or what it is. What is it?
3: Well, I'd like the answer to that question too, but I'll, I'll try my best to provide some insight to, as to what's going on. So basically, Randy Ambrosi has written a letter to CFL fans outlining uh, a four point plan for his vision uh, of the future, which he calls CFL 2.0, or the, or the next phase of the Canadian Football League. And uh, amongst those four points is basically making the game better. How can we? make the Canadian Football League more exciting, uh, make it faster paced, uh, higher scoring, uh, better defensively, just make the game itself a better product. Uh, Number two in that four-point plan is establishing or creating some market-specific strategies. So, you know, uh, This Is Our League was a phenomenal marketing campaign. It kind of repatriated a lot of uh, perhaps lost fans to the league, but it didn't really speak to some of the close-to-home issues that teams like Montreal, say, would would be experiencing, or Toronto, or, or whatnot. Uh, so they want to gear down into, you know, what makes these teams matter in their own backyard. So that's the the, the marketing-specific strategy behind that. Uh, another one is getting more kids involved in the game. Uh, basically, obviously, this is the, the lifeblood of any league, is to have interest in it from a Uh, participation uh, avenue if you don't have uh, new kids coming down the pipe obviously you're not going to have a league uh, in a matter of a few years so getting kids interested getting their parents obviously interested in having their kids play in the sport is also huge because of the concussion and the cte factor that has kind of uh, dogged football over the last uh, decade or so and the last in that in this four-point plan is growing the game globally uh, turning it uh, internationally and, and not necessarily, at least at this point, basing teams in another country, but uh, partnering with other leagues, a.k.a. the Mexican Football League, hence this uh, you know latest trek down to Mexico, to, I guess, perhaps uh, entice players from other leagues uh, to play in the CFL or other coaches to come up here and uh, you know spread their knowledge, or have officials train up here, and vice versa. Some of our players, our coaches, uh, the officials in the Canadian Football League would go down to Mexico or other leagues to participate, learn, and <clears throat> I guess are the ultimate goal of getting better, which would make the league better. The one, I don't know if it's curveball, but the one uh, interesting note, or at least another interesting note in all this, is that he's talking about forming a uh, a global player category. So right now in the Canadian Football League there is a national category. So if you are Canadian, you are listed as a national and every team has to start seven nationals. You have to have 20 on the roster. You have uh, an international player which is a basically an American. And now you would have if this plan goes through, a global player. So someone who's not Canadian and someone who's not American. They're from someone else. So Josh Bartell would be a great example, former Tiger Cats kicker, now with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and an Australian. So he would be in a global category. So I guess the uh, the prospect of this would be maybe each team dresses, I don't know, two or three global players, and that would benefit the other leagues. How it would benefit the CFL, I'm not sure, but if they're good enough to play in this league, maybe they would benefit the Canadian football league.
0: So your understanding of this, because I've read this story a few times, and... It's it's vague enough that I don't really know if there's any suggestion. And you sort of touched on it. This is not now talking about putting teams doing another American expansion kind of thing, right?
3: No, I didn't. I didn't get that from reading uh, his letter online today. It was, it was more or less, you know, sharing best practices. Uh, you know, training uh, players and coaches and officials more of a, an off the field partnership if anything even though these individuals would be on the field is is basically sharing knowledge improving each other's products so that each others can you know benefit from it but in terms of setting up a team in Mexico or Mexico City or whatever the heck you're going to do it i don't i didn't get the uh, the feeling that that's where he was going i think it was basically that we're going to bring in some guys from these leagues call them global players and they'll make our league better.
0: That would be a disaster, correct? We, we've been down that road. We've seen how that game is played. We're, we're not going to do that again?
3: In terms of expanding? Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, I, you know what? I, uh, you know, Halifax is there for the taking. Yes. Let's focus on that. I think anywhere else, including Mexico, would be the wrong answer. Forget about travel and forget about the differences in money. Uh, it, it, I think for the image of this league, The Canadian Football League, it can't go anywhere else. And and I'm saying this for the next five years or the next 500 years. This league has to stay in Canada. I think there were some good aspects with going down south, but by and far, it was an absolute failure, really. I mean, they had huge issues down there. Yeah, there were some great players that were cultivated and became CFL stars with Canadian teams. But for the most part, it was just a train wreck.
0: Yeah, you know what the best part of the expansion to the Americas was, to the United States, was Dennis Casey Parks and his national anthem <laughs> at the first game of the Las Vegas Posse. That
2: was
3: not
0: the only highlight. That may have been, but that truly was the greatest thing that we ever heard in the history of anthems. Was the uh, O Can- or the O Christmas Tree version by the crooning lounge singer Dennis Casey Parks? Um, how much of this do you think has something to do with there's this new American league that's starting up as sort of a farm league it looks like to the nfl and suddenly there's a bunch of guys who you would think would be coming to the cfl who are now signing here including the ticats first overall draft pick is this now looking down the road saying okay if this league actually takes flight if this league gains any traction we are going to be desperate to find those people to come and play in the cfl and we may as well go to mexico skip the states entirely
3: well, yeah, interesting to say that because this uh, AAF as it's called is is basically going to run during the same time as the Mexican League does. It, the Mexican League runs, I think it's a couple of weeks after the Super Bowl. It ends in and around May. So there there are players who have played in the states in, in the college ranks, maybe some former NFL guys who really didn't get, uh, you know, a fair shake or weren't good enough to make a team that have gone on to Mexico and it, it is a four down game down there. It's not a three down game in Mexico. And so they would be, uh, you know, obviously competing at the same time as this AAF. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, if the CFL is looking for the partnership with Mexico, it's going to be losing out on all those AAF players because they're going to be playing at the same time. So I think there is obviously a correlation there. I would think, though, that this AAF league is going to have a heck of a lot more, uh, I wouldn't say star-studded caliber players, but players who you have heard about or are up and coming guys like the Mark Chapman's of the world that I think CFL fans would be more interested in learning more about, or intrigued if their team signed them, as opposed to some nobody. You know, I, I hate to say it, but some someone you've never heard about coming out of this Mexican.
0: Yeah, agreed. I agreed. I don't know what to make of this whole Mexico thing, to be honest. Um, let's move along, though, because st- sticking with the CFL. Uh, story this week that three teams apparently are bidding on the 2020 gray cup i guess this year is in edmonton yes next year is in calgary and then the year after that 2020 right now has not been decided three teams are putting in a bid for that the ticats won't say if it's them uh first of all your sense do you think they are bidding for that I, w- I don't know
3: uh, 100%, but I would not be surprised if they did. I, I think, uh, listen, you know, Tim Hortons Field opened in, uh, what was it, 2013, 2014. Uh, they've had more than enough time, now that the you know, litigation aspect of the whole deal is uh, you know, put to bed, they've had more than enough time to plan, prepare, get their ducks in a row, uh, get any corporate sponsors online, uh, they've had uh, almost a decade's worth of work that they have been doing. I think it, they're more than ready to launch into this. Now, uh, you know, whether they're looking at the competition and thinking, maybe we can't beat the Regina's of the world, because I understand that they're going to be going for the 2020 Grey Cup as well. But With
0: their new stadium.
3: Exactly. So um, I, I think if they went for it, they'd have, they've had a, they would have a fair shake compared to any other franchise. There's no doubt about it, because there is a new stadium here as well. Uh, it would be uh, you know, a, a full house. Uh, I think the city would do a fine job hosting the Grey Cup Festival. There is uh, far and away enough hotel rooms now with you know, some of the new hotels that have opened up downtown. You can always rely on Burlington, obviously, <clears throat> if there is some overflow. Uh, so I think I would be more surprised if Hamilton and the Ticats did not bid on the 2020 great cup is because i think it's long overdue that we should be putting our name in the hat to say hey you know give us a
0: shot here. yeah 96 1996 was the last one time, time and and my question would be if they don't if it turns out that hamilton and i hope they are but if it turns out that hamilton is not one of the three teams bidding and you're right the 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 complaint or the the thing was well we can't because of the litigation over the stadium and this and that right. and the other with all that gone now if they don't my question is going to be what exactly are you waiting for like, what, what's going to be the, the perfect scenario that would make you then decide to do it? Because every hurdle seems to be out of the way.
3: You can say that 2020 is a perfect scenario because we, we just talked about it earlier. Halifax is coming on. So when they come on board... They'll get uh, one. Yeah, they'll get one for sure. It's in Edmonton this year. It's in Calgary next year. Do they want to stay out West again for a third straight Grey Cup? I mean, it would be unprecedented, but... Uh, I think that, you know, the CFL Board of Governors, those who vote on where the game should go, will say, you know what, Hamilton hasn't had it in over two decades now. They got a new facility. Uh, you know, their their bid is good. Let's, let's do it. And then Regina can get it maybe in 2021 or some of the other teams can get it, you know, the year after. I think if they put a strong enough bid in, I think they'd get some, you know, positive consideration.
0: Here's a way to do it. Any time there's a crossover in the CFL, the East is not allowed for five years to hold a Grey Cup.
2: <laughs> and any uh, Eastern that
0: be, team that had the Grey Cup lined up loses it to Regina. Because Regina's be, a winner every time.
3: Would that be retroactive? Cause oh, yeah. A lot of Grey well, Cups going out last
0: night. I, I don't think you could retroactively go back and <laughs> undo it. We're going to play the 1964 Grey Cup again. Bring back all the guys. They're now in their 80s, but let's do it anyway.
3: No, I mean in terms of the, having the crossover, because it's always been a Western Oh, I
0: see, team. yes yeah I, I actually now that i say it i really want to see those guys in their 80s play another great cup
3: now that would be entertaining
0: it would be slow
3: <laughs> everything would be in slow
0: and there'd be a lot of hip injuries
3: <laughs> so the slow-mo replay would be super slow <laughs> <laughs> uh
0: yes it would be um it would be something um by the way i did want to mention this at the top and i forgot is this totally unrelated well not really is this not the best time in the world for sports You've got the NHL starting. Yeah. You got the CFL on, you got Major League Baseball playoffs, you got the NFL going, CFL, NBA uh, pre-season, preseason starting, OHL has started, the UFC has a big card coming up. I don't think there's a better time. Maybe March with March Madness and all the stuff then. I don't think other than that though, there's a better time to be a sports fan.
3: Yeah, this is probably peak season I would think. You know, yeah, spring with March Madness, NBA and NHL playoffs kind of starting getting, you know, into gear come come April time. Uh, but the NFL was over by then. There's no CFL. Uh, I, I, yeah, I would think that this is like the primo time to be a sportsman because there's so many, so many sports going on and so many exceptional, uh, you know, events that are being held as well. You mentioned the UFC. I mean, things are, are really the stars are aligned for sports fanatics.
0: Rick Zamfren, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. You got it. Take care.
1: The Scott Radley Show weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML.